Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. It's certainly an eventful week in the news, with public health authorities in the UK scrambling to track down the close contacts of almost 16,000 people that they managed to misplace, while the almost messianic message coming from across the Atlantic is don't be afraid of COVID-19, as the president continues his treatment away from hospital amid the chaos of the White House looking to get the outbreak within its own halls back under control. Joining me on today's programme, on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Norman Wallace. Norman is an international tourism expert who specialises in creating family-oriented entertainment from theme parks and immersive experiences to leading international attractions worldwide. Wallace spent 12 years regenerating a derelict amusement park in Southport, which became the Pleasureland Amusement Park in 2007. It now attracts more than half a million visitors in its 12-week season on a normal year and is owned and operated by Norman's Northwest-based global tourism attractions company Universal Rides. Norman also owns an international tourism consultancy called Universal Attractions, which has been instrumental in delivering imagined worlds for over 30 years. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let us welcome Norman Wallace onto today's programme. Norman, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. And normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which has hung over all of us like a dark cloud throughout 2020, I do feel it's appropriate we address that beforehand because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But how has it affected you and your business? It's had an incredibly um, difficult time for us. Um, But what we have to do as leaders is find solutions and and not dwell on on the negative. We've got to find solutions, and and, uh, fortunately, we we have been able to to find solutions. We did manage to get open late July or mid-July, and it's by putting in as many precautions as we could possibly do. Uh, one-way systems, sanitizer systems, uh, signage. Um, one thing we cannot do is is make the public do the right thing. We can only suggest. And the public do have a responsibility through themselves and others to do the correct thing. Unfortunately, there are all sorts of uh, uh unpleasant information about the COVID. Uh, Some people don't think that it's real, but, you know, we must do the right thing. Um, Businesses are important, but people's lives are the most important and precious thing that any of us have. You know, we, we, we can always get more money, but we must do the right thing. And the preservation of life is the most important thing any of us can do in our lives. And so with that in mind, we put every precaution in place that we could possibly think of. And um, 
we, we've moved on. We've managed to just about keep our heads above water. Um, and that's the important thing. Preserving the business and preserving life is the number one. Um, we, you know, we've, many of us have been, have, have been skinned before, but none of us have been dead and we need to avoid that as, as, as much as, as we, as we can. Um, but we have, we have put an awful lot in place. It's cost us a lot of money. The industry, uh, our industry, the hospitality industry has been affected probably more than most, but we've also put more precautions in place than any others that I know. And so I'm very pleased and proud of the, the, the hospitality industry, although we do need more help to make sure that we are there when we come out of the other end. Exactly right. And I understand there was some optimism, particularly in the amusement side of things, that by closing the summer season slightly early, there was a possibility that that could be an unprecedented winter season as well, just to try and sort of bump up um, what's uh, coming in um, to the coffers um, over the course of this. Yes, um, yes. I mean, we, we did yeah. close slightly earlier than anticipated mm-hmm. in the hope that the, the R rate would, would reduce um, depending on how, how, which way the government wants to want do things and, and, and people do the right thing. So hopefully that R rate will reduce and we will then be able to open again for Christmas uh, in, 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 uh, in COVID-safe environment. Let's certainly hope so, uh, for sure, because um, there's certainly been some doubt about that given the Prime Minister's announcement just uh, two weeks ago. So let's keep our fingers crossed that that certainly is uh, going to be the uh, the case. We, we must plan for the worst, but hope, hope for the best. Mm, that's exactly it. Um, and that's all leaders really can do at the moment, isn't it? Because one of the most significant challenges of all of this is that there isn't really a a long term anymore whereas the long term was essentially months and years um, pre-pandemic what it's now become is literally weeks hasn't it it's very difficult to almost plan weeks ahead because of all of the uncertainty and the changing circumstances yes absolutely correct i mean all of us ourselves included we can't we can no longer plan months as you say we are actually now looking weeks and taking week by week to think what can what can we do next which is the right thing to do how do we plan our marketing strategy? How, how do we plan our budgets? How do we how do we make sure that we care for the staff that we need to retain staff? Because you know you, we spend years training staff, uh, getting people up to speed, uh, putting people on courses and colleges and, uh, and and all sorts of things, and we need to retain those people. You, you know, our industry is about people. We cannot automate the hospitality industry. We need people are the the, the lifeblood of it, uh, and we need to retain those people and do everything we possibly can to keep those people with us long term and continuously improving the environment and the training and the experiences that we can then give to to our guests. And talking about the guests and also the people who work for you, considering that the pandemic has thrust mental health and well-being very much back into the limelight, just how important is safeguarding those things within leadership, both in terms of looking after your own mental health and also that of others around you? It's incredibly important. You know, um, our, our, our staff love to give the guests a great experience. And what we do in the hospitality and the, and the theme park industry is help people's mental health. We take them out of that of that everyday life and 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 and, and give them a, a way to to express fun and create memories and 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 the things that are just a little bit out of the ordinary, creating an excitement, a, a, an adrenaline rush, making children just watching children's faces smile, you know, 
how good is that for their, for their mental health of parents and grandparents and in some cases great grandparents now you know that all helps and adds to the positivity of people's mental health being able to get out there and do things with their families is most important the family is so important and being able to come together in a safe environment to to just to just live life together that's mm. and, and and being able to, our staff love to do that we get so many good good comments back about our staff engaging with the public engaging with our guests to make their day a, 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 a memorable enjoyable experience that hopefully then and does in, in, in our case, it makes people want to return and come back and tell others. And we've got to do that in our the whole of the country so that eventually when COVID dies back, hopefully, we can encourage international visitors and help the economy um, throughout the, the, the British Isles and the UK. And thinking about the future when hopefully, fingers crossed, COVID-19 is no longer an issue and we do have a working vaccine, do you think that we will see a swift return to sort of what we knew as normality or do you think that there's going to be more of a prolonged COVID hangover? The reason I ask that question is because we're seeing signs that consumer confidence could take some time to return and there may be some lingering anxiety about people going out into areas where there are lots of people like theme parks, like cinemas and like football grounds, let's say, and actually spending money there and actually going out and doing these things. There will undoubtedly be people that do have personal anxieties uh, and it will take longer for them to 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 uh, get used to the new norm. Things will change. That's a definite. Things will change. Things will never go back exactly as they once were. So we need to um, accept that and move forward. There will always be people that will have those their own personal inner anxieties that will be less confident than they once were. But we've got to help those uh, by doing the correct thing. And eventually, hopefully, everyone will get back to uh, a new normal. But I don't believe that we will go back to what it once was. So we've got to accept that things do change. The one constant in life is change. Mm. And we must accept that and work with it. You know, it's a natural process and we've got to accept nature and move forward with that in mind. And having sort of adapted to this new reality thus far, is there anything that you have learned from this experience that you can take forward as a positive from all of this? I think that we've seen during lockdown how people have managed to come together and help one another. Nature uh, has, has been a very key aspect of, of the lockdown. And I think we've got to look how we can help the planet, how we can how we can reuse resources, how we can how we can work together uh, has, has really been quite prominent uh, in, 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 in for me anyway. And I know for many other people. And I think that's something that we should continue to cultivate uh, and and hope that we can do more more things together in helping one another and the planet as we move forward long term. It's very important. Um, I think the, the, uh, the throwaway society uh, um, culture, we've, we've got to kill that and we've got to look at uh, a much better, more wholesome, more holistic view of life going forward. 
it's certainly going to be one of the uh, the big um, parts of the uh, the debate over our working practices in the future, isn't it? Sustainability, because it's thrown up um, a lot of questions about the fact that do we need to be commuting long distances into office spaces? Can we be working from home? Can we be more sustainable in that sense? There's also arguments for and against sort of commuting to work for sort of mental health benefits because you have sort of the social isolation of working from home, but also there's the, t- the there's the work life balance um, benefit as well, being with course with family more constantly. So there are lots of different sides to the argument, and we can probably um, expect major changes in that side of things going forward as a result of all of this, can't we? Most definitely, and and um, we have to have a work life balance. Uh, there will, will will be people that prefer to work from home, and there are of course people that prefer to to get out of the home, go and do the work, and then return. And I think what we've got to do here is accept that things will change again, and we've got to accept different types of working practice um, and evolve our our methods to suit to suit people, to suit our our employees, to suit the public, and to suit particular trades and industries. As I said, our particular industry is very much a people industry. So we need people. We can't create robots to do our work because we need we need people to do it. Um, our industry is a growth industry. We we are ourselves looking to to employ many many more people as we develop and move forward. We're also looking to create you know the the, the first uh, um, uh, carbon free uh, theme park. Uh, all of these things are, are in our plans and in the pipeline for us to do. And um, we we are we have the ability to do that. Well, we've got some fantastic people in, in the UK um, and we can show the way for other countries uh, and to hopefully, by doing that, help our economy as well. That's a fantastic ambition and certainly uh, with um, the government's ambition in mind of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, that would be incredible, of course, if that can be up and running um, in the uh, the next decade or so, for sure. Um, just. Yeah. Just touching back on sort of on the current affairs ever so slightly before we sort of focus on the uh, the future, we do often hear the phrase that it's lonely at the top when it comes to leading a business, and that to an extent has rung true during COVID because what employees and people generally have done is look to their business executives to provide motivation and reassurance during this time. But when you are the person at the top of a business and there isn't anybody above you to consult as such, where as a leader do you look to in order to find reassurance? some motivation of your own sort of as and when you need it oh as a particular person you mean um yes i, I would say so well well for me it would possibly be winston churchill um but it is correct it is it is lonely um it can be very lonely um it can be very difficult for your family um you know we we, we don't want to well you know we don't want to to double troubles by 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 bringing other people and family members into into our worries. Um, personally, I I um, my I'm a, a glasses half full person. Uh, I I accept change and things that will will change, uh, and I, I try to be optimistic and find solutions. I, I I believe there's a solution for everything, and some things we cannot change, and we need to accept that we cannot change those. I. I I'm not very tall. I'd love to be six foot two, but it's no good me worrying about it because that's never going to happen. You know, so it's no good me worrying about the things that I cannot change. What I've got to do is look at the things I can change, look at the the positive side of things and look at what I can do to help. 
and uh, and and help everyone around me be successful because we, we by doing that everyone benefits. You know, everyone mm. benefits if we can help one another. Um, and I think that's something that has come out of this COVID situation. Um, I've got to say that you know some of the some of the things I, I see on the TV and news, I, I I don't see any good reason for people to uh, be aggressive towards one another and 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 just say the opposite just for the sake of it, as we perhaps we're now seeing in America. It's only by working together as communities, doing the right thing, that we can all benefit and, and improve together. And we have seen some fantastic collaboration during this time, which has given way to the innovation we've seen in business. Um, it's something that we've never seen uh, before and is a real positive to come out of all of this. And just tied into what you were saying just now um, as well, uh, Norman, what we are seeing as well is we're staring down the barrel inevitably of rising unemployment. And there are a lot of young people out there in particular who might be downhearted about the impact of COVID on the economy and on their employment prospects. And for you as a successful businessman, what message would you give to those younger aspiring leaders out there to get them to really pick up their heads and start on the road to success? Never, ever, ever give up. There is always light at the end of the tunnel and uh, you just got to get up and get something done. You know, actions speak louder than words and you just get up and start that process. And, you know, sometimes life will knock you down and things won't quite go the way that you, you expected, but you've got to learn from those things and move on move on, go to the next thing and continuously try, but never, ever give in. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. And something that you mentioned there will take us very nicely on to just touching on leadership a little bit more broadly. And that is that key word that starts with an L, learning, because leadership isn't necessarily something that you're born with. You might have certain knacks for things, certain natural abilities, but it is something ultimately that you do have to learn. And indeed, even as leaders, we're never a finished product, are we? It's a constant process of continual learning, continuous development and continuous improvement. Absolutely. I'm constantly trying to learn from others, uh, look at what other industries are, are doing, what they're doing, how can we learn from that, look at what others in my industry are doing, um, take, take uh, advice and information from others that have gone, gone before. Uh, we have some fabulous people that we can now learn from, uh, especially now with podcasts and uh, audio books. I find them uh, in, incredibly useful. Mm. Um, especially podcasts and audiobooks, because I can always go back and listen again if I don't quite get something. And I do that very often. I mean, I, 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 my, my audio library is, is, is really quite quite big now. Um, my real library is also reasonably big, but I find it much easier to, to put the audio on and listen. If I want to catch up again, I can go back. And I find it very, very useful. Digital Digital is, is fabulous, although I do like the feel of books and I like libraries. Mm. But digital, incredibly useful. Um, I think it's fabulous. And we have, we have these tools at our fingertips now to, to use for, for our and everyone's benefit. And I would, uh, I would always uh, say to people, learn as much as you can, continuously learn. We're never, ever too old to learn. Um, and, you know, who knows? Uh, who knows? You know, it, it, it might be the man that has the what, what you consider to be the most menial of jobs, but you can learn from people. You can learn from everyone. I find everyone interesting, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm mm. you know, for, for my industry, I, I'm, I'm very lucky 
that you know from gardening to um, to, to uh, uh, digital to uh, creative industries of uh, concept design, uh, CAD design, engineering design, and architectural design. Uh, you know, I'm very lucky, and I would say to to youngsters coming through now, look at alternative alternative industries. There are many industries out there that are so interesting, and you now have the opportunity to choose. And if you if you find yourself in an industry and it's not quite working out, you can also change. Don't be scared of change. Embrace change and move forward. Um, I can't think of an example now, but there are so many examples of people that have changed and, and found their niche, found what they love to do. Mm. I'm very lucky that I did that. Um, well, I'm very lucky that my family have been in this industry for about 150 years. So, um, uh, so it's perhaps slightly different for me, but I do actually love the industry that I'm in. Mm. Um, and I, I'm never, I'm never, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn and uh, I love to do that. I'm, I'm fascinated by all sorts of things and I, I welcome anything, any, any education, any learning that I can possibly get a hold of and get into my head. There are so many resources out there. You're absolutely right that people can go to to learn from um, other people and indeed um, each other. That's absolutely right. And it's something that I'd encourage any uh, young aspiring leaders to uh, to do. When it comes to sort of inspiring historic leaders, you did mention uh, the name Winston Churchill a little bit earlier on. And you also just mentioned there your family that have been in the industry for um, over 150 years, I think it was you said. Um, so yeah. when, with regards to sort of inspiring people closer to home, um, I suppose your family, I suppose, are big inspirations uh, for you having sort of personally worked with them and sort of let them lead you into the sector in a way? Uh, yes, well, I suppose my, my father. And, and when, when uh, I mean, I, I have two sons uh, and a daughter, but when, when you're a teenager, um, you never think that your father knows, knows anything and you know everything. And it's only later in life that you realise, ah, my dad was right. He, he told me about that. He, he told me how that worked. And so... You know, it's it's important for people to. Uh, well, I, I believe it's important for older people to be able to mentor younger people. Sometimes it, you can work with with within families, uh, and sometimes you have to wait to get a little older to to become uh, more uh, more mature to understand that that's the way that it is. Um, but we should always look to the past because history has a tendency to repeat itself, and we must learn from the past so that we can do the right thing in the future. And I think, you know, learning from people and what people have, have done before us is very, very important. And I would always say, ask. Never, ever be scared to ask. You know, not even if you think, well, that's a daft question, but it might be an absolutely fantastic question, the most important question you could ever ask. So never be scared to ask. Always ask. Why, when, what, where, how, so, so that you can learn. Never, ever be scared to ask someone's advice and ask a question. I think that's incredibly sound advice for anybody that may be listening to uh, to this today, uh, for sure, and some um, something to really, really take on board and heed going forward. I understand earlier in the conversation as well, Norman, that you did mention that there was a lot of negativity, particularly in the uh, the media at the moment, and a lot of criticism um, in the uh, the national sphere of leadership in general, particularly with regard to the COVID crisis. With that in mind. Do you think that leadership is actually celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Um, I think that there's a certain amount of disrespect about leadership in the UK. 
um, especially political. Um, and there are some incredibly uh, talented people on all sides. And um, I think that, you know, we need to bring those people together and get the right people to do the jobs that they're good at. The things, you know, people should focus on the things that they're good at and allow others to get on with the, with the, the things that they are good at. That way we all benefit. Um, but I do, I do believe a little bit more uh, uh, cross-party conversation for the right thing for the people, uh, for our communities, would be a, a, a good way to go. I, I also understand that that's perhaps very idealistic, um, but we, we do have to uh, live in hope. That leads me really nicely on to the next question, actually, Norman, which may seem a little bit mean. But if you were the Prime Minister just for the day, what is the one thing that you would really try and do or change? Um, do you mean changing the country or do you mean changing what? what it, it could be in terms of the nation. It could be in terms of the COVID strategy. Absolutely anything at all. I would say we need to be a little bit more informative and, and solid about what is expected of, of, of the public, of the people, um, and less ambiguous. There's a little bit too much ambiguity about at the moment, which scares people. People don't quite understand what they're supposed to do. We need to be absolutely padlock solid, belt and braces, so people understand what is expected of them. And so there can be no no misunderstandings whatsoever. And that's, that's what I would, I would say. Be definite, absolutely definite. This is what we've got to do. This is what we're doing. And that's it. All work together. Do this and we will achieve what we need to achieve. When all is said and done, that is fundamentally clarity and transparency. And in themselves, they are important facets of leadership. I think that's fair to say. Yes, that's the word I couldn't think of then, clarity. (laughs) Forgive me, that's the word I couldn't think of. We need clarity because people need to understand in very simple terms so that everyone, everyone in our country can understand what's expected of them. Clarity is the key. It certainly is going forward and thinking about the future now, just before we do uh, wrap things up, Norman, because I am conscious that our time is uh, quickly running to its close. Um, we know um, that over the course of the uh, the next few months, we're going to have to keep adjusting to the, uh, the new normal and persist with that until we can leave COVID-19 behind forever. But over the course of that period, as you're still getting to grips with those challenges, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the, uh, the next 12 months? And then indeed beyond that, once we can leave this, behind of course there's the carbon neutral theme park on the horizon but what other exciting plans are out there well we are we are we have been and are working very closely now with with uh, uh local government and uh probably one of the best brands in the uk in fact it's an international brand and it is a british brand that we hope we are we are working with and we're hoping to um in 2021 uh, be able to open a branded uh, uh all weather uh, entertainment complex as part of the theme park, which will then continue and grow over the next 15 years. So we have a 15-year plan now that we're, we're moving forward on. Everything's going very, very well, and uh, we're looking forward to opening that in uh, 2022, sorry. Um, so, um, yes, we're, we're, we're very hopeful of the future uh, and uh, continue to make our plans and, and moving forward and very sure-footed 
as I say, with probably the, one of the best uh, and most well-known brands, British brands in the country and, and uh, an international um, interest in that as well. So that's what we're looking to do here in, in the Liverpool City region in, in uh, Southport. And uh, yes, the future is bright. The future is definitely bright. And uh, I look forward to every day and working with the great team that we've got around us. It's fantastic that there's so much optimism, Norman, because it is so, so infectious and positivity is really what we do need at this point in time. You're absolutely right. And just given the scale of those ambitions, I actually think it would be wonderful at some point in the next year to just catch up and welcome you back onto the show just to see how those plans are really starting to take shape. I'd love to. That would be absolutely fine. I can't tell you who the IP is at the moment. Um, obviously, we're, 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 we're locked into confidentiality for okay. commercial reasons. Um, but yes, it's it's. I, I can't think of any any better IP brand that we could be working with. I'm absolutely so excited. I'm ecstatic. I'd love to tell you now, and it's going to have a a, a major impact on the Liverpool City region and the North. This will help the Northern powerhouse immensely. Uh, what we do have to do, though, is we need to get those uh, transportation connections in place. Mm. So I would implore government to, to look at that. We need to be able to move people in a safe manner very quickly, very safe. And, and uh, uh, we need to be focused on how, how we care for people, how we move our transport systems around, how we move people. You know, as we move into the future now, there are going to be more electrical cars. Uh, Hopefully, we'll get rid of the diesel and the petrol. And so we need to plan those things into the future. We're doing that now for our car parks, how we can create solar-powered charging stations. All of these things we're working on now, ready for the future. And um, we've got some fabulous people in this country. Let's work together and let's be successful together and make a great future for all all of our, our families and those that will come after us. Indeed so. And I think hopefully there should be the government support there because, of course, Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda was a huge part of his election campaign. He's determined to press on with that now, even through the COVID-19 situation. So let's hope that level of ambition survives within government and we can really see these plans starting to take shape. Well, all I can say, Boris, get in touch and we've got some fantastic stuff to show you. And uh, I'm sure you'll love it. So it's easy for you to get my number. Speak to Damien Moore and let's move on and make this country the best it possibly can be again and in the future for everyone that comes after us. Let's crack on. Absolutely right. Let us get out there and let us do it. Norman, I have to say it's been such a pleasure and so enlightening welcoming you onto the programme today. And we're thoroughly grateful for your time taken to join us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in the next year and just see how things are ticking along, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Stay safe yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Norman. It was a pleasure to welcome Norman Wallace onto today's programme. And I would reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to be sensible. Consider Consider others as well as yourselves, because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure to welcome Norman Wallace onto today's programme. I do hope that you all enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole team behind the scenes at Universal Attractions and Universal Rides is continuing to strive and raise standards even throughout this challenging time and create ambitious plans for the future. 
Joining us next on the programme will be Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his Premiership. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of his old constituency, Brightside and Hillsborough. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? 
I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, 
I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of action that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I have been your host, Scott Chaloner, and I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, I'll be occupying my usual corner in the Westminster Arms and raising a glass to raising standards and making sure that I'm out of the doors by 10pm. Remember, do be considerate of others and continue to look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.